Hi, I'm Jonathan Pennington, and this is the Human Flourishing Podcast. This podcast is a repository of a wide variety of sermons, lectures, interviews, and other resources that I've recorded over the years. Today's episode is a sermon I preached at Sojourn East in Louisville, Kentucky. Our scripture this morning comes from Exodus 3, verses 1 through 14. And if you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain." Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Morning. Um, My name is uh, Jonathan. I'm one of the teaching pastors here, and we have so many new people every week. I may not have met you yet, and I'd love to, so we're just so glad you're here. Well, way back in the very first story of the Bible, in the creation story in Genesis 1 and 2, there's a little bit of it that is really easy to overlook. You may not have noticed before. It occurs in in chapter 2, verses 18 to 20, and what happens is God has created the first human, Adam, uh, from the earth, and and he's also created all these other creatures. But then God has something... God does something that is, again, unexpected, maybe. He has all the animals come to Adam, and Adam names them. He names them. He gives them names. And that may not seem very significant, and like I said, it may be easy to forget that part of the story, but that's actually a really, really important human reality. It's a really important idea in the Bible, and that is that naming something is really a big part of Adam's 
priority and, and power as a human made in the image of God. And it's because naming something is really important. I don't know if you've really thought about it. To understand something, you have to be able to name it, to give it some kind of label or name, that, that when we name something, an experience or an animal or whatever it is, we can begin to understand what it is and what our relationship to it is. And if you start thinking more about names and how important they are to us, like our names, our last names, they have a heritage to them, maybe for good or for bad. We have nicknames we give to each other, you know, Old Baldy or whatever it is, or somebody, This a good friend of mine this week said when I first started playing golf, it was like Kermit the Frog. Okay, I received that. That's fair enough. My swing didn't look too great. Um, but we have nicknames. We have pet names, special names we give to people we love or our pets, uh, you know, Munchkin or whatever it is, Buttercup, right? And of course, very importantly, Names are what enable you to kind of yell at your children in a much more extensive way. If, if you were to say, Owen Lewis, Archibald Pennington III, get right over here or something, right? It gives you that full, that full naming power. That's not really my son's name, but that would be an awesome name. But <laughs> it's actually true in the Bible, too. Have you ever noticed something even maybe more important about names in the Bible than for us? And that people often name their children either something that's going on, including maybe something bad happening, or their aspirations, their hopes for them. So you've got Rebecca names her twins Esau because he's hairy, and uh, Jacob because he's a supplanter. He's grabbing Esau's heel. Um, Rachel names the son that she gives as she's dying Ben uh, Ben Ana, uh, sorry Oni, which means son of my sorrow. But then Jacob calls him and said Benjamin, son of my right hand. And have you ever noticed that God often actually changes people's names? Abram becomes Abraham, Sarai becomes Sarah, Jacob becomes Israel, Simon becomes Peter. And that's all because the name of something is related to its essence. And we've actually already seen this in Exodus. We're continuing our preaching through Exodus. In the last couple of weeks in Exodus, what we've seen is this main character, Moses, his name comes from the fact that he was rescued or drawn up out of the water as an infant by the Pharaoh's daughter. And then we saw last week, if you're here, that this man, Moses, who now 40 years after he leaves Egypt, he's 80 years old, he's in the desert far away, he names his son Gershom, which means, you know, I'm a sojourner, I'm a foreigner. It's, it's really a name of lament, so thanks, Dad. <laughs> it's, it's really a, a name expressing his brokenness and his lament, Right? Now, the reason this is important to talk about, because what we're going to see today in Exodus 3 is that God is going to give his name in a way that he never has before, and it's going to change Moses' life. Some would even say this is Moses' conversion, and it has the potential to change our lives as well. Now, Lindsay has just read the story for us. I'd love for you to look along with me. It's page 46, I think it is, in the Bible that's in front of you or pull it up on your phone. And we're going to look at this very famous story and ask what God is saying to us. So for the last couple of weeks, as I mentioned, we've been in Exodus chapters 1 and 2, and what we saw is that God's people, the Israelites, are in slavery in Egypt God begins to do a work. This person, Moses, gets raised by, the, he's a, a Hebrew young 
boy, but he gets raised by the Pharaoh's daughter. He becomes like a prince of Egypt. But then when he goes out to try to kind of see what's going on and he encounters the Israelites and the Egyptians, he kills an Egyptian uh, slave driver and then word gets out and he has to flee. So now we find him in Exodus 2 and in Exodus 3 as an 80-year-old man who has lost everything. He's far from his kinsmen in Egypt. He's no longer a prince of Egypt. From all human standards, he is useless. He's an old man living in the middle of nowhere. He's just a shepherd. And he's living among these other people. He's married now to this Midianite woman. I would throw a map up here just so you have a sense of what we're talking about. The Midian is over on your right, but they were nomadic shepherd people that went all the way over into modern-day Saudi Arabia. And so this is where our story takes place, kind of the bottom part of that today Saudi Arabia as a shepherd. And here we find Moses, an 80-year-old man, probably whittling his 9,000th stick, (laughs) sitting there fixing his broken sandals for the 50th time, getting a, a sheep out of a ravine. His life is nothing. He is just sitting on a mountainside, and then something happens. Look at chapter three, verse one. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness, came to Horeb, the mountain of God. That's later going to be Mount Sinai, we'll see in the rest of the book. And there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire within a bush. And Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. And he thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. So again, long, hot, boring day, long, hot, boring life. And he sees this kind of weird thing that's not unheard of, except for it's clearly not burning up. And so he approaches it, and then completely out of the blue, it says his name. (laughs) Moses, Moses. Imagine if you're in your backyard, and you see, what is that over there? And you kind of start going towards it, you're not sure what it is, or it's a dark alley or something. And then he says, Michael, Julie. And like you hear your name. This is Moses' experience. You can imagine he feels it in his body. And so verse four tells us, I think probably involuntarily, he says, here I am. (laughs) What else do you say in that moment, right? And then look at what God says in verse five. Do not come any closer, God said. This is reminiscent of what we're gonna see later on Mount Sinai, the same place. Take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. So he realizes he's not just imagining this. This isn't just a natural phenomenon happening because this voice who turns out to be God himself continues the dialogue with him and tells him to do something that you don't see very often in the Bible, although it probably does have some ways it works out. You still see it in a lot of Mediterranean cultures today. That he's told to take off his sandals because the ground is holy. This is a sign of reverence, a sign of humility. But I, don't, I would imagine we may not totally understand what holiness really means in the Bible. When we talk about God being holy, which is this primary attribute who, who he is, it means he's separate. It means he's distinct. To be holy means to be set apart, 
to be separate. And so this is what the significance probably of the fire image is. And from here on in throughout the book of Exodus and through much of the Bible, God is going to constantly show up in this image of fire. And it's emphasizing that he is separate because fire is this thing, you know, you can read about it or think about it, but when you experience it, you realize it's separate from you and it's only dangerous to get close to fire. And this is the image that's used to communicate that God is separate. And in this encounter, Moses feels it, I'm sure, in his body and, and he won't even look. He's afraid to even look. But then... God doesn't show himself as just, holy, and actively fire. He makes himself known. He's not just aloof. He reveals himself with a very personal name. He says, I'm actually the God of your father. And the God of your fathers, your ancestors, Abraham, Jacob, and Israel, you know me. And in fact, some interpreters, goes way back in rabbinic interpretation, see this bush on fire as a great picture of this combination of who God is in that he is simultaneously separate and distinct because for God to be holy means that he's the creator and we're, cre- we're creatures. He's unlimited and we're limited. It's, it's this fundamental distinction between us. But instead of showing up with like this massive tree, which a lot of ancient Near Eastern religions used huge trees or even at this moment showing up on a mountain, he shows up as this bush, this lowliest of plants that is also on fire. And it seems that it probably communicates this combination of God being willing to relate while also being distinct. And so now, this scary, weird encounter that's become more personal takes it to another level. Look at verse seven. And the Lord said, I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying because they're slave drivers. I'm concerned about their suffering. And so I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up out of that land to the good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. It's the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. (laughs) Okay, There's a lot there in those verses. And in fact, it's really going to take the whole rest of the book of Exodus to unpack this. This is really setting up what's going to happen and really throughout the whole rest of the Bible because what is happening here is this is showing God as one who intervenes, who hears the prayers of his people and intervenes, and he's going to not only rescue them from bondage, but also bring them into this land flowing with milk milk and honey, which is just an image of prosperity. It's an image of shalom, of of fullness and goodness and fertility in every way. And so though in those verses, we really see this sort of fundamental idea that's going to be throughout all the rest of the Bible. And so That leads then in the last part of our story for Moses to ask a couple of questions, (laughs) a couple of really important questions. And the first one is in verse 11. He says, it says, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And that's a fair question. This isn't 
some kind of false humility. I mean, remember, he is a broken man. He has nothing. And he's asking a fair question. Okay, so you're saying, I'm going to go to Egypt, the most powerful empire in the world, <clears throat> to this people that don't know me, and probably if they do know me, they, all they know is this bad story about me. What am I going to say to them? Like, by what authority am I supposed to say this? Like, what really is, you know, who am I to do this? And we're going to see that next week, Pastor Kevin's going to pick up the story. This is going to become a big issue. Like, what, how should Moses think about this? I'll leave that for him. And let's look at the second question in verse 13. <clears throat> Excuse me. So Moses said to God then, okay, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask me, what's his name? Then what shall I tell them? So again, he feels his own insecurity that he's not the person to do this. And then again, this fair question of like, why in the world would they listen to me? I need to know who exactly are you? What is your name? And what do I say when they ask me who sent me? And that leads to one of the most important verses in the whole Bible, chapter three, verse 14. God's answer is going to bring us to the high point. Look at it there. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. Now, I don't know if you feel the weight of that verse, but for the last 3,000 years, that verse has been seen by both Jewish people and Christian people as truly one of the most important ones in the Bible because in asking for God's name, Moses He's seeking to understand exactly who God is. I mean, all the gods of Egypt have names. All the Greek gods later are going to have names. All the Roman gods. Gods have names. And he's asking, who exactly are you? Because if God gives his name to him, that enables some kind of relationship, some kind of access to him. And so far, God has been revealing himself to, in, throughout the book of Genesis to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to others. And he reveals himself with some important names like God Most High and the God Who Sees. And if you keep reading the Bible, we'll see God reveals himself with a lot of other attributes as well. Compassionate, merciful, full of loving kindness, faithful, the rock, the provider, the refuge. But this answer, this answer in verse 14 is of a different order. I am who I am, or we can even translate it, I will be who I will be. It's mysterious, it's unclear. And like I said, for 3,000 years, Christians and Jewish people have pondered this and recognized there's something else going on in this revelation. And in fact, this verse and that the four Hebrew letters that are given in the answer to this that we translate as far as we can tell. We don't know exactly how to translate, but we translate I am who I am. Those four letters have their own name, the Tetragrammaton. And to this day, almost no, if any Jewish people will even pronounce this name. So you, whenever you run across those four letters, which occur a lot in the, in the Hebrew Bible, you never pronounce them as they are out of reverence. You say something else like Adonai or Lord. Right? And that's, you'll see that in our Bibles as well often. And it's because there's a recognition something is being said here that has never been said before and will not be said again until Jesus. And actually, at first, then it's actually kind of like, okay, 
I was asking for something a little bit more specific, and you say, I am who I am. Well, the reason why this is such a weighty answer is because what's being said in this, God is saying, I am the very nature of being itself. I'm not just a God who does things. I am the God of reality. I am the God, this is, this is emphasizing the isness, the, the being of God himself. The great Jewish scholar Robert Alter says it this way, whereas particular actions may be attributed to humans through the verbal names chosen for them, to God alone belongs unlimited, unconditional being. You hear what that's saying? Unlimited, unconditional being. By God revealing himself as being, he is communicating that he is independent, he is sovereign, he is separate, and he doesn't need anything. And in theological terms, we call this God's aseity, A-S-E-I-T-Y. It means God's self-sufficiency, his independence, his autonomy. And a lot of scholars have suggested and pointed out, I think there's a lot to this, this is probably actually what's being communicated also by that burning bush. Because how does fire work? Fire is this mysterious, powerful thing but it only works as long as there is fuel, as long as there's something that is there that it can burn on. And once the fuel's gone, the fire is gone. And this idea that there is a fire that communicates God's separateness and power, but it does not burn up, it needs no fuel, is an idea that God, again, is self-generating. He is independent in a way that nothing else in the world is. And so you can see, this is a very, very weighty thing. And again, this is, if we pull on this thread, we're going to see this all throughout the rest of the Bible. But to wrap this up, I just want to ask one simple question related to that. And from this whole story, and that question is this, just what exactly do we learn about God? What do we learn about God from this story? And there are two things I want to draw out. Here's the first one. God cares about our suffering and he steps into the world with compassion and power. And I'm getting this from what God says to Moses in chapter 3, verses 7 to 10. It's repeated all throughout the Bible. God is not just this impersonal force. He's not uh, just this um, thing that we can pray to or manipulate. He is he cares about his creatures. And even though we humans have gotten ourselves into this mess and in situations where we have gotten ourselves to a mess or something's happened to us, he actually cares. He's not just karma working its way out in the world. He's not a secondary deity to be manipulated by others. He's not an impersonal force. He's actually a one who hears the prayers and cares and often steps in to bless he interrupts people's lives to bless them. And he usually does that through other people, even broken people like Moses. Now, again, th this is going to be the whole rest of the book, so I'm not going to say more than that in this, uh, for now because I really want to spend just a couple more minutes on the second one, which I think is particularly poignant from these, this story, and it's this. Number two, God doesn't always fix our problems but he's faithfully and actively present with us. God doesn't always fix our problems, but he's faithfully and actively present. 
while it's true, what I just said in the first point, that God cares, he cares for needs, he cares about brokenness, he, he does step in and rescue, there's a mystery to the fact that even though that's true of him, there are lots of unanswered prayers or what seem to be unanswered prayers. There's brokenness that doesn't get fixed. There's injustice that continues. There are wounds that we don't fully heal from and leave scars. And friends, this is why verse 14 is so important and really very practical. Because God is revealing himself, you see, not only with names that talk about what he does, provider or kindness or rock, but he's revealing himself as this unchanging very nature of being. And he promises as that one who is self-generating, did you see it in verse 12, I will go with you, I will be with you. And that is deeply personal and deeply practical. How? Because this revelation of God to Moses and the Israelites and to us doesn't actually solve all their problems. In fact, more problems are about to happen. They still have the whole going down to Egypt that we'll see, all kinds of problems, Pharaoh fighting against them, them rescuing. There are going to be countless times where their problems are intensified and they feel it. But he's promising something more than fixing all the problems. He's promising his own active presence. Because more than just helping to, to deliver in particular situations, which God often does, he does often intervene, what we really need is his faithful and abiding and active presence, like a, like a father, which is exactly how he's going to reveal himself. A father who is present even if all the problems are not fixed. And part of the beauty of this, friends, is that this isness of God, this God being the very ground of being, means he is inexhaustible. I love how one commentator says, we'll never catch God out of not being prepared. We will never um, have situations that are too much for him to handle. Because he is, is. <laughs> there is nothing greater than that. In fact, you could say, God is saying, I am, and then you could fill in the blank with whatever your need is today. By God revealing himself as I am, that means it's open to all that you need. I am a comforter. I am a healer. I am a deliverer. I am one who will walk with you through grief. Whatever your need is, whatever's coming to mind for you now as something that you want to be fixed, that I am fills in that, not by always fixing it, but by his presence. I don't know if you've seen the wonderful movie, it really is, uh, Wreck-It Ralph. Have you seen that or the sequel? They're really, they're really excellent. I think we often want God to be like one of the protagonists in there, Fix-It Felix, where he's got this magic hammer where he can hit anything. He's a video game character and, he can hit, and it heals and mends anything. And that's how I think we think of God and, and we think if we pray enough or promise I'll never do this again or I'll always do this, that he'll do it, you know, putting our fleeces out there. He does do that a lot. He does intervene. He does care. He does heal. But what if God 
wanted to do something more than just fix everything? What if you wanted to build something more expansive and more beautiful in your soul? What if rather than fixing everything by being present in the midst of difficulties, you become more whole and you become more fully human and you, your soul is expanded. And so while it's okay to pray, it's absolutely okay to pray for deliverance, pray for healing, what's actually being promised here is something more. It's something deeper and more profound. It is God's own presence. God is like giving you his cell number. He's inviting you into his living room. He's giving his name as being the very nature of being so that I will go with you so that you can trust me. And by not always fixing our problems, what God is doing is he's building in us what we might call a resilience. It's a great image of of tempered resilience. I get that phrase from the name of a great book. And the idea is that to make metal stronger So make a piece of iron able to actually hew out a piece of marble. You have to heat that metal up. It has to be shaped. It has to be cooled. And then, and it's tempered. It becomes more than it was before. And that's what God is often doing. Over the last couple of weeks, Pastor Kevin said something I just want to repeat because I think it's so appropriate here. He said the Christian life consists of a lot of learning to trust God is at work even when we don't see it. That's so true. And I want to give you a vision from how God reveals himself that he is present even in that thing. In fact, if I were to ask this question, if you, like, or what in your heart or what in your life right now you think if this could be fixed, then all would be well? Well, that's okay to pray to that end. But I also want you to realize that, again, he's not always going to fix things because he wants to bless you in a way that you did not anticipate. Because the reality is, whatever problems he fixes in our lives, there's always something else. (laughs) So we need something more than a fix. We need presence, like a father. God, the father who is present with us. And, you know, when we, whenever we teach or preach from the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures, um, it's natural and good for us to ask, how does this work its way out in the rest of the Bible? And sometimes people do that in a way that doesn't feel very natural. <laughs> the Jesus jump or something, <laughs> you're in an Old Testament text and all of a sudden Jesus appears. It's okay. I mean, that's appropriate because we understand that Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. But in this case, in Exodus 3, you cannot not think about what the New Testament says about Jesus in relationship to this. Particularly those two things that are true about God, that he cares and he's compassionate and he steps in. That is exactly what happens in Jesus. He is the sending of God himself in the Son, the incarnation of God, to bring rescue, to bring healing. And at the same time, the second thing is true, that he doesn't always fix our problems, but he is abiding with us. 
what is the first name of the many, of the name of all names? What's the first name, the first descriptor we get of Jesus in the New Testament in the first book? Is that he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And if you keep reading through the Gospel of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, how does it end? In the Great Commission, when Jesus commissions his disciples, you and me, to follow in his ways and live in the world, what does he say? I will be with you. Because you see, that's what we really need. We need his fatherly presence, the spirit and our union with Jesus himself and the spirit empowering us to live this life in the midst of suffering. Thank you for listening to the Human Flourishing Podcast. To learn more or get in touch with me, visit my website, jonathanpennington.com.